Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I am your host, Rado Palamariu, Global Supply Chain Practice Head for Morgan Phillips Executive Search. Today, I'm happy to have Blake Larson, Head and MD International for Lalamove. Founded in 2013 as EasyVan in Hong Kong, Lalamove is the leading same-day delivery platform present in 129 cities in nine countries across Asia. Through its mobile and desktop platform, Lalamove connects customers with professional van, motorcycle, lorry, and truck drivers. Some of their corporate clients include IKEA, Line, and Google. They raised so far a total of $161 million in funding over six rounds, and the latest funding came from uh, from a Series C of $100 million on October 11, 2017, which means the company is now valued at more than $1 billion. Short intro about Blake. He has worked across four continents, mostly in the retail and technology sector. He has helped lead the growth of Lalamo from one city in Southeast Asia to eight, has also been involved in the Series A funding of $10 million, has launched Easy Taxi app funded by Rocket Internet in Hong Kong, Singapore, Mumbai, and Jakarta in the previous role. And also before that, he has co-funded and managed Air Group Club, which was like group one for airline employees and expanded it across six continents and 13 cities. Also, he has some very interesting stories to share, including how after his MBA, he spent his first eight weeks uh, for Rocket Internet in, in Hong Kong, standing outside petrol stations, handing out flyers to taxi drivers. So we'll, we'll find out more about that. But before, Blake, a warm welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's start maybe with a, with a, with a story about, uh, about you in Hong Kong standing outside petrol stations. How did that come about? Uh, yeah, so it was um, literally the day I arrived to Hong Kong um, and my first day on the job for uh, Rocket Internet's Easy Taxi. So we were launching an Uber-style or a Grab-style um, taxi application in Hong Kong. The global CEO from um, Brazil was in town. For my first four hours of my job, he handed me a piece of paper with 10 questions and he goes, go, go solve the business, you know, go start it. And I was like, oh, what do you mean? He's like, well, the questions are there. Just go out there and do it. And so um, I didn't know what else to do except to go get close to our customers. And to do that, we first had to have uh, our taxi drivers on the platform. So literally, I don't speak any Cantonese. It's the first time I lived in Hong Kong. The first day I was in Hong Kong, and here I am printing flyers and going out in the 35-degree uh, heat, handing out flyer after flyer to thousands and thousands of taxi drivers over the next eight weeks. Oh, wow. That's, that's quite an interesting start to your, to your Asian journey, yeah? <laughs> yeah, it, it was quite, quite crazy. And I think it, but you know what it showed me is that there's a, there's a lot of glamour around startups and what they are and what they're not, but actually... You don't know until you try, and you don't know until you go face your customer. And so uh, to see the faces of the local Cantonese taxi drivers when, you know, this uh, white guy who doesn't speak Cantonese is standing outside knocking on their windows and um, filling up with, you know, they're filling up with petrol. Um, They obviously rolled down their window because of the novelty of it, but it was the best way to uh, kind of get my fingers into the business right away. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a very interesting story also because because uh, um, if we think about the story of uh, Grab is is another uh, taxi app right that started yeah. in Southeast Asia and the the founder of, of Grab which is uh, Anthony Tan he did the same in, but in Malaysia okay in a different geography but exactly the same because the principle as as you rightfully said is you need to be close to your uh, customers right or to your uh, users yes um, so interesting interesting story um, so tell us a little bit about about Lala Move right what what it is. Uh, for the listeners that they don't know how exactly it works and how does it add value to people? 
Sure. So uh, a lot of the move uses a, a crowd um, source model as well, kind of like the taxi apps. But instead of moving people, we're moving things. So our, our focus is really and exclusively on local hyper local deliveries. So we're not doing between cities. We're not doing international. We're really focusing on first and last mile deliveries um, in the largest cities across Asia. And we use a crowdsource model to do this. Yes. Okay. So it's basically it's uh, specifically only in intra city, right? So intra city last mile delivery, exactly matching uh, available space in uh, in lorries, in vans yes. with the with the need. Exactly. Okay. So mm-hmm. like um, I mean the the local delivery space is very very fragmented, um, and and actually a lot of the local logistic companies don't even own their own assets. Um, and they're working with independent contractors anyway, right? So basically, we're we're taking all of this um, fragmented supply pool, um, putting it on a, a mobile platform to you know drive the efficiency of our drivers. But because of the model and the density of these drivers, um, you know our core com- um, competitive advantage really is how fast we're able to do delivery relative to tradi- traditional means of um, you know delivery. Mm. And as as it, so, you're you're the MD and head of international, right? So what's what's your role as, as in that capacity at Lala Move? Right. So we're we're across 129 cities right now across Asia, and that's split between mainland China and outside of mainland China. So my role is actually at the uh, business outside of mainland China. Um, that includes all of our city operations, our product team, our tech team, our finance, all the shared services, etc. So um, I'm I'm running our business uh, across the SEA region. Mm-hmm. And and how different is it to operate across different cities, across different countries? Because I imagine also from a last mile logistics center that would differ from the consumer's behavior that would differ. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so um, I think this is, uh, depending on who you're talking to about this question, right? So people talk about the opportunity in Southeast Asia, 620 million, 650 million people. And um, if you're not really familiar with it, you, you just look at that number and you look at growth rates of anywhere from 5 to 10% in all of these countries and for the GDP, and you say, wow, that's a really, really big opportunity. But when you actually start digging into the details, um, the nuances across the countries, across the cultures and everything really, really make the region uh, an opportunity, but a huge, huge challenge to operate effectively. And I think um, for us uh, specifically, uh, I like to you know simplify it into like the customer's expectations in Singapore versus like Manila, because we're in both markets, right? And for example, um, in Singapore, if you told the, um, the customer, Hey, I will uh, deliver your goods, you know, today, and I promise I won't steal them. They would laugh at you yes. because Singapore is one of the most secure, safest cities. Traffic is generally pretty good compared to the mega cities across Southeast Asia because it's not that big. The infrastructure is very strong. Um, so, but yet that value proposition of "Hey, I'll deliver it to you in the next couple hours, and I promise your goods will actually show up in Manila" is very, very strong because the. Um, the local offering in that market is proven to be quite unreliable um, of the goods even showing up. So we've really had to adapt um, to the local cultures and also like the, the infrastructure challenges or lack thereof uh, in competing markets. And so Singapore and Manila, again, I think these are really two extreme examples of where the customer's expectations on what fast means, what reliable means, what uh, secure means um, are really, really different. Mm. And I wanted to ask you actually, because I know that in, in uh, I think in certain markets and specifically in Hong Kong, where also your density is larger, you have the promise of 55, is it 55 minutes yeah. Delivery time? So, so actually, if you look at our average delivery time across the region, and this actually, I'll, I, I'll put China into this, our average delivery time from order to drop off is 55 minutes. 
So um, it, that's, that's it, impressive. it's really, really uh, quick. And, and the reason we can do this is because uh, the level of driver density we have. So um, across the region, we have over 2 million registered drivers on our platform. Right. So I believe the statistic was the largest logistics fleet in the world. And this is a few years ago was the United States Postal Service. And they had something like a quarter million vehicles. Um, so after four and a half years, we have over two million registered drivers on our platform. So this allows us to have very, very high driver density, um, which shortens the distance to the pickup. Um, location. So that's where most of the savings are. And a lot of this is idle capacity anyway. So you're actually bringing more business to these independent contractors that otherwise maybe we're doing one, two orders a day. But because of the density of our orders and the density of the drivers and the quicker turnaround, um, we're actually helping the drivers be a lot more efficient as well. Yes. No, but that's, that's fantastic. I didn't, I didn't know this statistic because also I'm thinking from uh, coming back to the problem with the the traffic, right? Because um, let's let's take uh, in Southeast Asia. I think Manila and Jakarta are probably the most, uh, yeah, the craziest <laughs> in terms of traffic yes. on, on day, right? So, yeah, yeah. Um, if you indeed have the driver, I'm just thinking out, of, out loud, right? But if you have the driver in the same neighborhood and they can pick it up, right? And then, uh, I mean, still 55 minutes. I, yeah. I would doubt they would do that in 55 yeah. minutes in Manila and in Jakarta, but still, it's a bit longer. But actually, I was looking at the. Uh, the number this morning and our average arrival time, right, from the time a driver accepts an order to the time he arrives in Manila is nine minutes. And you and if anybody who knows Manila, the expansiveness of this city is quite it's it, yeah. it's huge. So it really speaks volumes on like the level of density of the drivers that we have in the market. Yeah. Well, and also, I guess the caveat on this, too, for, um, for people that like don't know Southeast Asia is that the types of vehicles that you do delivery with is quite vast here, right? So everything from motorcycles to cars to vans to uh, 10-foot lorry, 14-foot lorry, et cetera, all the local deliveries done by so many different um, means uh, and different types of vehicles that um, obviously the arrival time and delivery time is impacted in the cities that have the worst traffic based on the type of vehicle that they need to do the delivery. Yes, yes. And how do you how do you pay the um, technical question? Yeah. Right? But how do you pay the drivers? How how do the drivers get paid in a sense of you know well is there a flat fee? Is there like, right? No, no. So actually, our our pricing model is a base price plus a per kilometer price based on the vehicle type, right? So all we do is a revenue share model with them. Um, you know, we, uh, the driver keeps 80 to 85% of every order and we take 15 to 20% of that. Okay. So it's very similar to, to Uber. It's quite similar. Yeah. Mm. Um, which was some of the, which was the fastest growing country for you in Southeast Asia and, and, you know, maybe some of the key lessons for you in, in, in growing the business there? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, each city, one thing I've learned through launching many cities is that the growth trajectory is, is not predicated at all on your past performance in other cities. And a lot of it is because of the localization um, or the local dynamic of what's happening from a competitive standpoint. But uh, recently, we've launched um, uh, Vietnam and Philippines. So we launched Ho Chi Minh and Manila. And so right now, after about 15 months, Manila is growing unbelievably, but maybe the first four or five months, it was a little bit slower. Whereas Ho Chi Minh, from the very first day, grew very, very, very quickly. And a lot of it has to do with the um, both the uh, experience that customers are used to in that market. So is the service basic service level good, high or not? And then also the abundance of supply. So these are two markets where uh, the supply is very, very abundant and actually the general level of service that people are used to getting from uh, delivery providers is not that high. So we've seen tremendous success in these two markets. 
Because basically, so if I am to summarize, the pain point is that, okay, they, they have pretty bad delivery um, uh, service or existing, and then you, you come in and fill up that gap. And when you say that you're growing, it's a good growth, I mean, can you give us some some, um, some specifics, like how, how big is your growth? I mean, we, we can easily range anywhere from like uh, 20 to 50% month on month growth for the month first two month. years, for the first two years. Wow. Right. Yeah. That's... So, um, and, and I think, uh, something that's important and that's quite close to our like ethos as a company is we actually very much believe in sustainable growth too. Um, so I think we have a very different model, um, than a lot of startups that raise a lot of capital, um, primarily because of the types of customers that we serve, and most of them are SMEs, actually. I mean, we do work at the enterprise. We do some consumer delivery, um, like C2C delivery, but we primarily it's SMEs. And what we found really early on is that uh, these clients really uh, value trust, reliability, um, and consistency, even over, like, free. I mean, mm. they'll try you for free, for sure. But we found that actually uh, subsidizing heavily in this market is not an effective way to retain customers, maybe to get them initially. But, uh, you know, they really uh, value your dependability much more so than just the the monetary part, which isn't necessarily true in some of the um, consumer driven, you know, internet internet companies, I would say. And do you find yourself, because I know that, for example, for China, and we will not name it, but there is a pretty strong competitor that you have, but do you find that you have a strong competition in Southeast Asia? Is there one player that, that, that because I also don't know, actually? Yeah, I, I, w- I would say that there's very few, if none, regional companies doing what we're doing in Southeast Asia. I would say we have a lot of like tangential competitors, right? So, uh, like Grab and Gojek are doing a little bit more on the C2C delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of their customers is, is consumers, um, and so they're just moving it over. Um, there's local competitors that have tried uh, in, in all the different markets in Southeast Asia, but none of them have been able to scale uh, across the region. And I think a lot of that is actually the challenges of um, managing uh, a product and operational process in a, in a way that is both scalable but also local enough to add value. Mm-hmm. And, and with your latest round of funding, do you have, uh, I mean, obviously you have plans of expansion, but where, where, where do you see uh, that happening and I mean, do you plan to target more corporate clients or SME clients or what's Yeah, what's I think the, uh, there, there's a couple areas that we're really investing in. One is definitely more talent and a lot of that is going on the product and tech side because product and tech allows you to scale much, much faster. So your uh, ability to develop things and solutions quickly is uh, paramount to, to future growth. Uh, so the second part we're going to be investing in is a lot of new services. So a, a lot of our clients are still doing primarily uh, on-demand or same-hour delivery. Uh, we'll look to layer on a lot of other interesting same-day delivery options at a lower price. Uh, and then the third area we'll look is to continue to further uh, open new cities in Southeast Asia. So we're across all the major cities at this point in mm-hmm. Southeast Asia, but we'll look to do, I guess, if, if Southeast Asia has second and third tier cities, um, we're still seeing opportunities in there. So we'll, we'll look to do that in the coming uh, several months. Got it. Have you uh, so, so-called so failed in any city? I mean, has it, has it not quite picked up the way that you wanted it? Yeah, so uh, again, I think failure is somewhat relative, but uh, we haven't closed a city yet. Um, yeah, and I, I would say that you know most of the time we, we believe there's an opportunity for delivery everywhere in Southeast Asia right now and China. Uh, it's just whether you can adapt quick enough 
to be uh, relevant in that market. So one of the examples, though, that where we really had a challenge is our first city was Hong Kong. And then what we did is about five months after we launched Hong Kong, we came to Singapore. And so we used the same product. Um, we used the same type of marketing, the same type of branding. We said, hey, you know, copy, paste, copy, paste. And then we got on the ground and it just it didn't take off. Um, because actually how people um, interact with delivery in Hong Kong is actually unique to anywhere in the world uh, from what I found so far in the sense that um, there was already a dispatch system for delivery in Hong Kong that worked like traditional taxi operators where you would call a call center and a delivery guy would come up. So for us, all we did was digitize this and make it more effective. But actually in, in um, Singapore, a lot there's a lot more self-ownership of the SMEs of their vehicles. Um because they like to have the control of the quality. But actually, this doesn't scale very well as their business grows, right? So um, actually, we had to really come in. And after a few months where growth was, it was there, but not at all up to our expectations. We had to really spend a lot of time with our customers and understand that the pain points in Singapore to doing delivery were quite different than Hong Kong. Mm. Um, and, and so I, I think we've adapted fairly well, but I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's still work left to do. Mm-hmm. And what, what, what would you say to, to, to be a bit more specific? What would you say that there were the, for Singapore, let's yeah. take this example, that sure. were some of the, because I hear the, uh, it's, it's a recurring theme, right? Mm. Be local, uh, localize the business model, yeah. uh, be close to your, to your consumers and, and, and see what's the patterns and what do they appreciate. So, for example, in Singapore, what do, they, what do the people in Singapore care about? They care a lot more about service quality than in Hong Kong. Where in Hong Kong, it's like, get it to me now, just like the city. Get it to me now, give it to me. Service is like a secondary thought to speed and efficiency. In Singapore, it's definitely much like from a customer standpoint, where it's the SME or the final customer receiving it, the service level, the expectation is much, much higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and uh, do you think that in terms of same-day delivery, do you think that it has the potential to become a standard delivery option for you know for the masses? Mm. Or do you think it will remain an option just for the limited number of impatient consumers with deep pockets, specifically in Southeast Asia? Yeah, it it will become a standard offering for logistic companies to compete effectively in the mid to long term. They will have to offer it. Whether it's right for every customer, that's actually not for, I believe, the companies to decide. Your, your job is actually to give the customer choice and, and provide it at a price that uh, is valuable to them. So, I mean, certain goods, um, yeah, you definitely want them same day. Like there's a sense of urgency. But if you can deliver it next day or two days or three days at you know, a fraction of the cost, like I think that will still be prevalent for the foreseeable future in Southeast Asia because there is still a price sensitivity. Um, and, and this will be particularly true for the e-commerce segment. Mm. So um, if you talk to any of the, the guys doing uh, local delivery, you know, whether it's the, uh, the local logistic companies or the international or even us, like delivery windows and times are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. This, there's no disputing this fact at all. So you're seeing the compression of delivery time cycles. Um, and we believe that's like where the opportunity is because with our model, the density that you can do to drive the efficiency is very, very hard for a lot of companies to replicate. But for sure, the customer is going to be more demanding of all of us um, in the coming years. Mm. Yes, and I think I mean this this model with with the Amazon and Alibaba really driving the two hour the, the you, you name it right. I mean they getting more and more uh, people used to the idea of, okay, look, it happens really fast and we're just kind of expecting it to happen really fast. And if you're not doing it, you know, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Um, and I'll give you, a, maybe a, there's a question in there, right? Because I had, as, as a consumer, I remember I had this situation. 
I had some problems with mosquitoes in my house. I wanted to buy a mosquito lamp, right? Yeah. Because, you know, mosquitoes were biting me and my family. And then I had to wait, which was incredible at that point. I mean, it still is the same problem, actually, in Singapore, which is not such a big place, right? I had to wait three days for the delivery, right, from mm-hmm. a, a more name, an e-commerce platform. I'm like, how is it possible, right? It's just one city. It's fairly, I mean, it's not It's not a huge place. It's, I mean, it's, and I had to wait for three days. So, basically, I just went physically to the shop and bought it and then yeah. brought it back home, yeah, right? Yeah. So. There's got to be a better way, right? I mean, uh... yeah. I, I mean, I think there definitely is. I mean, the traditional way is really to drive it based on what's best for the co- uh, the company, right? From a unit economic standpoint. But more and more customers and consumers like yourself want a personalized experience, right? And and they want to be able to get um, the goods in the time they choose. Like I said, it, it's not always now, but when it's now, they want that choice. Uh, and, and so I, I believe that there's a huge, huge opportunity, not just for ourselves, but just the general um, delivery market to adapt more from a customer first perspective. Um, the, the, log, the literal logistics of figuring out how to do it in an economically feasible way um, is a challenge. But actually, you can no longer hold on to traditional process for process sake because that's how it always was done. And that's how you traditionally made profit. Um, and so you're going to see companies that don't evolve their mindset, but also like their, their process that when it comes to efficiency, really, really take a backseat to companies that are really willing to start with the customer and then work backwards into how the, the process fits the need of the customer. Because mm. this, this brings me to the question is like, you know, there's a lot of actually problems in the last mile, right, the yeah. sector. And this is a huge challenge for the, for the e-commerce growth. I mean, how, how do you see the, the development currently and maybe in the future? I mean, e-commerce is a tricky one, I would say, for um, all of the the last mile delivery guys, whether people are doing it in-house or using a company like us or, um, you know, any of the postal operators, whatever, because uh, the likes of Alibaba and Amazon have spoiled everybody or they don't want to pay, right? They really don't want to pay. And because these are marketplaces, there's several other um, competitors on the marketplace selling a similar product at a similar price. And so those margins of the products are already very, very thin because it's competitive, right? So where are you going to find the margin to pay for the delivery if you're not charging the customer? Um, But I guess this is where a lot of venture capital has actually stepped in in private equity and uh, kind of driven the growth at the expense of profit. Um, And that's why these large e-commerce companies are able to grow. But from a delivery standpoint... um, you still have to find a way to make it economically feasible. Someone has to be paying for it. So it's either the, the customer, uh, the person selling the product, or the, the financial investors. And right now, a lot of it's the financial investors, I would say, um, at the, uh, in, in the aim of driving more you know, market share. But yeah, for us, for us delivery guys, it's to find out how to do this e-commerce at a reasonable price uh, that the customers are willing to pay is is definitely not an easy thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it's also it's not sustainable, is it? Right, because at some point somebody will have uh, will have to <laughs> stop funding it, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you you have to find ways to make money, right? So again, I, th- I guess our take on this is it's it's important to get to a price point where people believe it's fair. It's you know, and um, and if we can't deliver that, we, we don't play in that space, to mm. be honest, because uh, we, we do believe that the unit economics have to work out. You need to create systems that create the right types of behaviors uh, where it benefits everybody. And so, um, yeah, e-commerce, though, for whether it's the internet-driven companies or even the traditional logistic companies, there's this huge growth, but huge, huge challenge to do it uh, in a financially efficient way. Yeah. 
And, and look, I mean, in terms of what we're seeing and what's happening, truthfully, on the market, uh, actually some of these guys have had to create their own logistics arms because nobody's willing to do it for them, right? So if you look in Southeast Asia, you have Lazada, you have Zalora, you yeah. have Shopee. I mean, they're kind of creating their own logistics. The 3PLs are not doing it for them, yeah. right? Because they, there's no money in it. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's big, big problems. And then you look at the postal operators, they're not quite geared up for e-commerce as well, right? So, um, yeah, it's anybody's guess how it's going to work out at the end. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, we have a client that's also using somebody else the other day and they were shipping something from the UK to Singapore and they were able to get it door to door for less than five US dollars right wow and so when I was talking to them I was like you know and I won't say who which company it was but basically I mean there's a market share grab for a lot of the logistic guys out there right there because no one's making they're losing lots of money on that um, to service just so they can service that particular client. So, yeah, it's really, really interesting the different approaches people are taking to, you know, really chase the e-commerce growth right now because yeah. it's there. But to do it profitably is, a, you know, a whole nother story. Yes, yes. And, and um, uh, one, one other question that I wanted to ask you is in terms of the corporate clients that you have, right? So we talked a little bit about IKEA. We talked about Line. I think mm. you have a partnership in Thailand. Sure. Do you, do you plan to attract more of these guys? Uh, what's your what's your thoughts? Yeah, so so we're really building out uh, a lot of our enterprise solutions right now, which a lot of a lot of that is both the delivery piece of it, um, but it's also helping them to manage their internal operations better and more efficiently. So giving them a lot of visibility into this data. Historically, we've actually purposely avoided the enterprise clients uh, when we were much smaller because um, they're the guys with all the capital. Um, yet they want really long credit terms, which is like a death sentence for cash flow for startups. Uh, the sales cycle's long. Um, their their strategies typically are to use multiple providers, so it's not like they're aligning their interests and your interests wholly. So we've early in you know uh, when we were smaller, we found it to be a very high risk strategy. When you nail the big clients, it's very rewarding. But uh, we had a few bad instances, particularly on you know the collection side when we couldn't afford. Uh, to have all that cash that was ours sitting with somebody else that could actually afford to be paying us on time. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're going through a transitional phase where we're, you know, moving back into this segment. Though. Yes, yes. Uh, let's, let's move a little bit in terms of talent, in terms of hiring, in terms of um, getting the right people on board, right? So how do you typically hire your city directors? And, and maybe tell us a little bit about the process of launching a new city. Yeah, so I, I gleaned a lot of uh, experience from my day actually handing out flyers to the taxi drivers in Hong Kong on this See, one. Was just- <laughs> yeah, um, and so what we typically do is, I mean, we do have a, uh, an interview process. Uh, we actually go by uh, a process uh, from a book called the A Method of Hiring. Um, and I think it's important just to have a, a standard process. There's, I don't believe there's a lot of right process. There's probably one that fits you better, but actually doing it consistently is one way to look for our city directors. But going back to the Hong Kong store, we basically tell these guys, we give them an exercise, and I say, look, I want you to go talk to five customers, small business owners, just ask them how they do delivery, and I want you to go talk to five delivery drivers. Just go find them in the streets and tell me what you find out. You don't have to tell them you're applying for a, uh, a job. Just just ask them what's going well for them when it comes to delivery and what's not going well. And there's a lot of things you get from that. One, you uh, you get their ability to kind of dissect what problems are, are not important. Um, but also you get a sense of like their character. Because I actually have inter- or, you know, gone to interview a lot of people that said, well, I'm going to be the city director. That's not my job. And that's the best way to end the interview process with us because it's actually not important what I think. It's what 
the customer thinks. And if you're not willing to go out and speak directly to our customers, and our customers are both the business owners, but also drivers are definitely our customers as well, um, we won't you know, even entertain a second interview. And then uh, the second part of that is one of the characteristics we definitely look for is uh, uh, somebody local. I mean, there's very, very, we have one exception to this, but uh, people that understand the local dynamic, the local culture in SEA or even China are very, very important. They have to understand like the, the cultural psychology of that city, particularly again with our driver. We're working with thousands of drivers in this city and um, they might not always like, especially as like somebody like me, I'm from the US, I've lived outside a long time, but I will never understand the psychological uh, aspects of what it means to be a driver in a, in a city if you're not from there. Right, so we, we really, really look for uh, a core team at the local level that is from there, and oftentimes they've all either come from a similar industry, or and or they've also been educated abroad too, because we want people that both can like narrow in on the local thing, but they need to understand like more global regional context, mm-hmm. and so that that's really a killer combination for us. Mm-hmm. And 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 what are some of the main challenges that you face when it comes to finding the the, the right ta- talent, right? Because also, I mean, with, with hiring, growing, uh, it's getting harder and harder, right? In, in, in expensive growth phase. Yeah, I, I would say now for us, um, it's actually distinguishing between people that just want to jump on the ride versus builder, right? And so we. Uh, you know, it's, it's very, uh, startups are kind of in, in a lot of ways right now, you know, following funding news is interesting for people. And so consequently you do get a lot of inbound interest right now because you're doing a lot of new innovative things, which is a great, great thing to bring in talent, but actually being able to distinguish between the people that just want to be along for that ride versus the ones that want to build, um, to build and make it happen is, is not always easy during the hiring phase because a lot of it is, um, the validation of their past experience, um, how they, you know, look and solve problems. But uh, we do a lot of reference checks as well. And 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 you, I know that the four values of the company are are passion, grit, humility, and uh, and execution, right? Um, how do you tell the story of the company culture uh, to the outside world? How do you build an interesting brand as an employer? Yeah. So for me, it really starts with those four values. And um, the second piece of that is being authentic about them. And so, um, you know, we, we hire, we reward, and uh, sometimes we fire based on those values. So when we think about employer branding, um, for us, it's about being transparent about those because we actually very strongly believe that that's been a big contributor to our success as we've grown. And the reason we believe this is actually because when you operate across so many different countries and so many different cultures, and even in Hong Kong where our headquarters is, I think we have like 15 to 20 different nationalities. It would be very easy to say, oh, it's different in this country or somebody else does this uh, in a different way and it's not a good way or you wouldn't understand you're not from here. But actually our value system gives us a common language by which to relate to each other that actually transcends kind of the surface level attributes of each one of us. So when we, again, we go back to employer branding, I think it's being authentic that we're proud of these values and, you know, sharing the, the challenges that the job will definitely entail. I mean, it's, you know, people think, oh, you're, you know, really well funded and, you know, it's going to be this like Google, Facebook experience, you're in tech and all of this. The truth is a lot of it's still very messy. 
and you either love that because it's a challenge and you find and in that challenge you find ways to grow personally or you say this company doesn't have it together it's the same situation but it's actually how the person interprets that and again by giving them the lens of who the people are they're working with and like how we approach these types of challenges um, really goes a long way during the interview process to letting people assess whether we are the right fit for them yes yes and interesting that you you put there also humility yeah that's an interesting one right i mean i understand passion great execution i understand yeah. but humility why did you put humility? yeah so there's actually humility has three three meanings for us um and it's actually it, if we do let people go it's typically because of this not the other ones and so this is why it's maybe the most important for us so the three the three things humility means for us is what you would expect putting the team before yourself but because we believe to build this market, we rely on everybody, right? Our drivers, our users, and our teammates, right? So you definitely have to have a team first mentality. The second part of humility is um, having a mindset for continuous learning. You, you never want somebody who thinks that they've already hit their pinnacle because the company is going to keep growing. Their job is going to keep changing. So if they already think that they're at their pinnacle and can't grow anymore, um, their job is going to outgrow them. And then the third one that I found the most interesting early on when we talk about humility is we say we don't want people that recreate the wheel. And, and why this is really important is when you're growing and you hire really, really smart people, really smart people think that you hire them to solve problems in an innovative way. But you know what? There's certain problems we've solved or there's certain problems other people have already solved, right? So we use the example of login. Facebook and Google know how to do login on something. Like we don't need to come up with a new way to do login. So that we have to convince these really smart people um, that they don't need to solve things that have already been solved, but put their energy into the, th- the hard things that haven't been solved. But that's very, very counterintuitive sometimes when you hire exceptional people. Mm. Yeah, I mean, don't walk on your hands if you can walk on your feet, right? Ex- yeah, exactly. Um, Much more succinct. <laughs> um, and I heard that you make your new employees build their chairs. What, what's the story behind that? Uh, yeah, so um, it is true that we make our new employees actually build their chairs. And, and, and where this came from was uh, after we launched for about 15 months, um, we are in like an old industrial building in Hong Kong. Um, we had just moved into the new office. This was the new office, but it was still not very nice. And we bought chairs and, you know, whatever chairs to sit on. But we have a lot of engineers who sit a long time and uh, do a lot of coding. And a lot of people were complaining that, like, their chairs were causing problems. But we didn't have any money to go buy new chairs. And, and also we're in a business that is about efficiency. So actually, like, throwing away perfectly good chairs for new chairs doesn't, like, really fit with who we are. And so... We couldn't afford to buy 50 new chairs at that time. So what we did um, for the next 12 months is we had a monthly town hall and we would raffle off five new chairs every single month because that's what we could afford. And so through that process, we took something from people complaining about, oh, my chair doesn't work to being something where people were really excited to get their name drawn out of a bag. But there were conditions to it is that if you didn't pick up your chair, because it was in a box, I, I'm sure we were ordering from, actually we're ordering the same chair still and I think they're still from Taobao. <laughs> they're better than the old ones, but they, um, people actually had to put them together with two days or the chair, the name went like back into the bucket and it would get redrawn. <laughs> so people were really obsessive about their chairs. Um, and it, it really, um, 
is close to our heart. One, because we believe in building a sustainable business. Two, we believe in not wasting resources and actually making resources more efficient. And three, it's to remind us that, like, you know, this is a long journey. And, you know, you come from very humble beginnings where things aren't perfect. But you can turn these challenges into exciting opportunities if you just let your mind go there. And so uh, people now, I mean, we across China and Southeast Asia, we have 3,700 employees now. And so it would be very easy to look at the headlines of the funding um, to say, oh, you know, they're across all these cities. They have all this money. Um, but we don't want to lose, like, the things that made us successful in the early days. And a chair, the chair is, like, a good reminder of, like, the journey of where we've come, but the journey that we still have to take. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I was, I was just yesterday, I was talking to a very successful entrepreneur from, um, from Myanmar, and he started many years ago in the manufacturing of, uh, manufacturing business of uh, food, uh, food manufacturing. And when, at that time when he started it, he basically had to, uh, to take a loan and he basically mortgaged his house and everything. And he still had enough money only for half of the factory. So half of the factory was built in iron and, and all the, the, you know, the, the normal materials and half of it was built of wood because, you know, he didn't, he couldn't afford it anymore. And uh, now many years later, he turned into a very, very successful businessman, but he keeps that factory as it was because he wants that to be a reminder. Look, we started there. We are now here, but let's not forget where we started, right? Because it's so many people that can fall into complacency. Yes. And and I think it goes back to the point I was making. There's like, do you want people that are long for the ride or do you want builders? And we're still building. So I think little things like this uh, are are symbolic reinforcements of the type of people that we want to join us on this journey. Mm. Final, uh, final uh, question. What would be an advice that you would want to share with somebody just graduating and, and you know, wanting maybe to, to start a career, to start to get into a start, startup or, or whatever? What would you advise? Sure. So I, I've got three points on this, actually. Um, the first is you don't realize this till you're out of school, but up until you graduate, your entire life is prescribed for you. Right. The schools, you, you know, you, you go to school and then you go to university and you go through things. But all of that, probably your parents or like other people have kind of put you on this path. And then you get out of school and the path is open or at least it should be right at this point. And so you really have to think hard uh, about like that transition to growing up is really about going from other people telling you what you need to be doing to figuring out what you need to be doing on a daily basis. Because mm-hmm. no longer are people going to pat you on the back for getting a good grade. Like they're paying you to do a job. So don't expect a pat on the back anymore just for doing what you're getting paid to do. And I think that's a really hard realization for people um, graduating. Um, the second part that I believe very strong in is the idea of like self self authorship. So really creating your own story, right? Again, I think this goes back to everything being prescribed for you. You don't realize that all of the influences up until this point in your life have really informed your personal perspective on things, but you have to really self-reflect and say, is that my perspective? Does that align with my personal value system anymore? Right? Just because you thought you should go into tech or you thought you should be a doctor or, um, you know, a lawyer or or whatever the job is that, that you thought you should after you graduate, is that really who you are? And, and so I really encourage people to try to do some self reflection and see, um, if what they're doing really aligns to who they want to be. Um, because it's very easy to go on a path that's uh, more driven by like what you see in society. It's not even your your family, right? Like, go make money, go do this. Pretty soon, you start following a path, and you don't even know anymore if that's your path or someone else's path. So, self authorship is super important concept for me personally, and I think I wish somebody told me that much much earlier in my life. 
Um, and then the last one, I have a secret to get a job almost a hundred percent of time for self graduates that I would hire this person every single time if they came into an interview. Um, if they were a fresh grad is if they came in and said, look, I've used your service several times. I went and I talked to your customers. And for us, I went and talked to five drivers. I went and I talked to five small businesses. And this is here what is what they say about your business. And this is how I think you can improve. I would give this person a job every single time because normally they're just waiting, you know, for, you know, the, the interviewer uh, to give them a question and then they can answer it. Oh, you know, I did this in school or that in school and blah, blah, No, no, just tell me about my business and prove that you're proactive about caring what my customers care about and I will hire you. Mm-hmm. Super. So guys, you, you heard that. So if you want to get, get a job in, in Lalamu, you know what you need to do. Blake, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for the sharing. Thanks for, for being with us today and good luck in the, in the future growth of uh, Lalamu. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on radopalamario.com slash podcast for all the show notes, links, and extra tips covered in the interview. Make sure also to subscribe to our emailing list to get the news in the nick of time. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes or Stitcher and you like what we do, please kindly review and give us five stars so we can keep the energy flowing and get more people to find out about our podcast. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me to stay tuned for our latest uh, articles as well as future guests for the podcast and if you have any suggestions or any other idea please feel free to write to me i respond to all and also please make sure not to miss our next episode where we will be having a few other c-level and top leaders in supply chain joining us stay tuned